Welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Our class will be on the origins and history of International Women's Day, which is celebrated internationally now on March 8th of each year. A Women's Day was considered as early as 1908. The first Women's Day celebration took place in Chicago on May 3rd, 1908. Organized by the U.S. Socialist Party, it brought together an audience of 1,500 women who demanded economic and political equality on a day officially dedicated to the female workers' causes. The following year, women gathered in New York for a similar celebration. Inspired by these American initiatives, European socialists soon followed suit. At the International Women's Conference, which preceded the general meeting of the Socialist Second International in Copenhagen in August 1910, leading German socialist Louise Zeitz and Clara Zedkin proposed the establishment of an annual International Women's Day as a strategy to promote equal rights, including suffrage for women. More than 100 female delegates from 17 countries unanimously endorsed the proposal. What would seem a fairly innocuous gesture marked a significant break with socialist tradition. Though ideologically committed to human equality, socialists had long argued that women's liberation would only materialize under socialism, and the only way for working-class women to improve their lot in life was to join working-class men in their struggle. Feminism was seen as a cause for middle-class and upper-class women with their own class interests in mind, yet fearful that the feminist demand for female suffrage might actually attract too many working-class women, socialist leaders decided to embrace it. Still, they insisted that the vote was a means to an end, not an end in itself. On March 18, 1911... The 14th anniversary of the Paris Commune, International Women's Day was marked for the first time. More than a million Austrian, German, Swiss, Polish, Dutch, and Danish women took part in marches and meetings. The Austrian-Hungarian Empire also witnessed more than 300 demonstrations. In the following years, similar events spread across the European continent. Generally spearheaded by socialist women, demonstrations called for women's rights and female suffrage, and many feminists readily joined their socialist sisters. This is important for the communist movement, very important. Half of the population is women in the world, and it's always been that way. If you read Engels' book, women were always given the short end of the stick, historically. And with the advance of the women's movement, interesting, it started in the labor movement, not among the capitalist class. It was only in the United States in the 1970s that the women's movement took a different turn and started to be pushed by the bourgeois class. The Chicago gathering was the first ever in North America and was displayed by Marxist ideology. Did it have a clear line based on Marxism? Not then. It was socialist. 
And there is a history of the socialist and suffrage movement, but this was the first time in 1908 that a Women's Day celebration was considered. So this was the Thank first you. time, yeah, women tried to put together their own day. And that was in 1908 with the Socialist Party. I found it interesting that the socialists were very concerned when they saw what we call the feminist, the middle class and upper class, protesting for what they considered important, along with suffrage, and that it was the socialist leaders were concerned about their working class women, that they might get drawn into this feminism protest, so they embraced it although they felt that the vote was just one item that needed to be addressed. I thought that was interesting that they did not at first go along with it, but were concerned when the working women wanted the vote also. I was so surprised to find out that this initiative started in the USA. Everyone knows it's not really celebrated here, especially March 8th. My husband is Soviet. His family's from Belarus, and the first time I actually celebrated it was when we first started dating, and he brought me flowers and chocolates and a bear, and then his dad called me and said, Happy Women's Day, and I was so shocked that they're telling me Happy Women's Day. It's just really shocking to find out that this was started in the USA, just like May Day. May Day was also started in the USA, and we don't even celebrate it. It's so sad. These women's movements, or at least organizations that took place, in the early half of the 20th century, do we know how connected these were to the Second International and the role they played in Russia in 1917? I'm glad you asked that question. I've heard people say, well, how come the communists weren't the ones? Well, there were no communists in 1908. Everybody was a member of the Socialist International, the Second International, and our lineage, our political lineage, starts originally with the first international, which was in 1860s by Karl Marx, Frederick Engels. That was the first. We also are connected to the second international, which is also called the Socialist International, which is the one we're talking about now. And then, of course, the third international, which was the Communist International, which lasted until 1943. And then after that, the Communist parties got together and have meetings every year or two, and that's what our party, PCUSA, is connected to. That's our connection to the history. The women that were in the Second International who were running that, like Clara Zetkin and other people, eventually became leaders of the Third International. The Russian Revolution happened in 1917. That was the change. In 1914, the war started, World War I in Europe, the split in the Socialist Party, and they became the future Communist Party. So all the Second International were involved with the beginnings of International Women's Day. And to answer the comment before, International Women's Day, March 8th, is now recognized in this country only because all the people that came from Eastern European countries celebrated March 8th. When they came here to this country after the counter-revolution succeeding, they came here. 
because things were really, really economically bad there at the end. So they came here, and I could tell you it was Staten Island. On March 8th, they went to the florist, and the florist couldn't deal with them. This is what the florist told me. They couldn't deal with them. So now they accept March 8th as International Women's Day because it's money for the florist to give flowers to women. During those first demonstrations in March 1911, was there any repression or pushback or any violence put against them by the state or any other nefarious actors at the time? No, there wasn't. It was a celebration. So there was no pushback in 1911 at that time. 1970s, because of all the countries that were represented in the United Nations, from socialist countries, including the new countries like Mozambique, Angola, Nicaragua, El Salvador. They all celebrated March 8th, International Women's Day, along with the German Democratic Republic, China, all of them. So once they accepted it at the United Nations, it became more acceptable to the rest of the United States. The year 1911 is very significant because that was the year in New York City for the famous Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Women were working in a factory called Triangle, making women's undergarments, and the bosses went and nailed the doors shut. And the reason they did that was because they said they wanted to prevent stealing. So a fire broke out, and nobody could get out. So the women jumped up, up above windows to get out of the building. Women workers in New York. Second thing is that the reason why we have so much trouble with organizations today like the CPUSA is because they've gone back to the idea of the Second International. The Third International is by Lenin. So if you're a Leninist, you're in the Third International, and if you don't follow Lenin, then you're not. The outbreak of the First World War in 1914 halted much of the international collaboration that had underpinned International Women's Day and sowed deep divisions among socialist women. Many supported national sentiments while others protested the war and called for working-class unity across national divides. Eventually, many of these women, including Clara Zedkin, would abandon socialist parties who rallied around the war effort and instead embraced communist parties and organizations. Russian women had first celebrated International Women's Day on March 8, 1913. Yet if International Women's Day generally floundered during the war years, it was an International Women's Day celebration that ultimately triggered the Russian Revolution. Four years later, on March 8, 1917, working-class women in St. Petersburg, exasperated by rising food prices and rapidly deteriorating living conditions, led a demonstration calling for an end to war and to political autocracy. Once unleashed, their cries for bread and peace could not be quelled. By March 12th, Tsar Nicholas II was forced to abdicate. Footnote, Comrade Lenin was still in exile in Switzerland at the time. The Tsar had already abdicated and the provisional government set up by the time he arrived in Petrograd in April 1917. 
The events of 1917 in Russia ended up setting the date for the celebration of International Women's Day, not only in Russia, but across the rest of Europe. Why is it that there is such a resistance in many of the left to take up the women question? Like they said earlier, how working class women will find liberation through taking up the class struggle with men. Maybe anyone else can understand what I'm trying to say. My experience in the movement, in the 1970s, two things happened in the left in this country that we never had before. One of them was the gay rights movement at Stonewall in New York City. LGBT community came on the scene in the left. And the other one was the women's movement. And the women's movement in the 70s, one of the books that pushed it was a book called The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. And women started burning their bras at demonstrations. This is exactly how it happened. The bra became a symbol of holding back women. So that was the beginning of the women's movement. It was a feminist movement. It was the beginning of the feminist movement, and historically, except for Kohentai and others in the early Soviet experience who talked about Marxist feminism, we have a book that we reprinted from 1948 called Women Against Smith by a comrade named Betty, first name. But that was the reason why there was a resistance. It was the beginning, in my opinion, of identity politics. Now, it means something different to everybody on this phone. But at that time, it wasn't even called identity politics. So for the first time, the anti-war movement, gays, majority of them, separated from the anti-war movement. Only the Marxist gays and the Marxist women incorporated. And I have to give credit to Workers' World Party, Sam Marcy was the general secretary at the time. They were leading those Marxist movements in both the women's movement and the LGBT movement. So I hope I explain the reason why there's been a hesitancy. And remember, the communist movement set up a movement in 1945 at the end of World War II called the Women's International Democratic Federation, WIDF, which was set up at the United Nations by the Socialist countries and the Soviet Union. And their affiliate in this country is RE, Women for Racial and Economic Equality. I understand when we're talking about feminism, a lot of its basis, especially in the current left, comes from a more postmodern or liberal understanding of feminism. And as at least I understand it, part of the Marxist idea of overcoming the struggle of patriarchy is through the overcoming of class institutions. That class conflict is where we see things like white supremacy and patriarchy emanate out from. And I think that's why there's this early emphasis and still kind of prevailing trend to think that we can solve these feminist issues through just a socialist revolution in terms of our relationship to production. But I think that's being challenged by ideas of a more intersectional approach to things. Something that is a little confusing about the Russian revolutions, both of them, 
the one in March and the one in November. Because Russia at the time used the Julian calendar, which was 13 days behind the Gregorian calendar, what was used all over the world. So the March 8th revolution on Women's Day was actually in February. That's how come it's called the February Revolution by all the Bolsheviks and all the Russian history at the time. And then the October Revolution was actually on November 7th. So in 1918, Lenin changed all that and brought Russia to the Gregorian calendar so it was the same as everybody else. So the dates can be a little confusing for people sometimes. The next summary goes into detail on what transpired on March 8, 1917. This author is not a friend of Soviet Russia, but his description of the day is intimate in the details. By midday of that day in 1917, there were tens of thousands of mainly women congregating on the Nevsky Prospect, the principal avenue in the center of the Russian capital, Petrograd, and banners started to appear. The slogans on the banners were patriotic, but also made forceful demands for change. Feed the children of the defenders of the motherland, read one. Supplement the ration of soldiers' families, defenders of freedom and people's peace. The crowds of demonstrators were varied. The city's governor said they consisted of ladies from society, lots more peasant women, student girls, and compared with earlier demonstrators, not many workers. The revolution had begun by women, not male workers. In the afternoon, the mood began to change as female textile workers from Viborg's side of the city came out on strike in protest against shortages of bread. Joined by their menfolk, they swelled by the crowds of the Nevsky Prospect where there were calls of bread and down with the czar. By the end of the afternoon, 100,000 workers had come out on strike, and there were clashes with police as workers tried to cross the bridge, connecting the Viborg side of the city center. Most were dispersed by the police, but several thousand crossed the ice-packed river Neva, a risky thing to do at negative 5 degrees Celsius and some, angered by the fighting, began to loot the shops on their way to the Nevsky Prospect. The governor's Cossacks struggled to clear the crowds on the Nevsky Prospect. They would ride up to the demonstrators only to stop short and retreat. Later, it emerged that they were mostly young reservationists who had no experience of dealing with crowds. By an oversight, they had not been supplied with the whips used by Cossacks to disperse civilian crowds. This weakness emboldened the workers to come out in even greater numbers in the following days. On the 24th of February, as many as 150,000 workers had taken to the streets. They marched from the industrial areas, crossed the bridges, and occupied the Nevsky Prospect looting shops and overturning trams and carriages. There were fights with the police and the Cossacks on the bridges. By mid-afternoon, the crowds on the Nevsky Prospect had been swollen by students, shopkeepers, 
office workers and spectators, the governor described the crowds as consisting of ordinary people. Something from Frederick Engels in his reference to utopian socialist Charles Fourier. This is a quote. He was the first to declare, meaning Charles Fourier, that in any given society, the degree of women's emancipation is the natural measure of the general emancipation of the population. It's very, very important. So way, way back, even with utopian socialists, Frederick Engels mentions this, that even they said that the emancipation of women, that issue, was generally a barometer of the general emancipation of society. The determination of women to overcome all obstacles to complete emancipation has become a global political issue. Women are at the forefront of every struggle for peace, for full equality of economics, for political and social rights, for reproductive rights, to rid society of all forms of gender violence. Bourgeois government, fearful of the growing power of the international women's movement, seek to absorb, what Comrade was just saying, and divert it into a harmless, classless channel. Such is the character of the International Women's Day events planned by the government, number one. The program is taken out right of the bourgeois feminist handbook. The overwhelming majority of women are wage earners. Let's not forget that. A universal free child care program staffed with highly trained and well-paid professionals is needed in our country now to allow women to reach their full potential not only as workers, but their full potential as human beings. Full economic independence for women is the guarantor of equality with men and the basis of their unbreakable unity and the struggle for new victories for all of us who work for a living. Question about the Cossacks. Were they a branch of the military or something else? The Cossacks were kind of scattered through like the Caucasus area, southern Russia, more towards Europe and Ukraine. They're more or less like tribes. They had their own soldiers and whatnot, and those were employed by the Tsar. And later on, you had the Red Cossack and the Red Army served during the revolution and then went on to the military. Yeah, so I just also wanted to say how it was funny that the Cossacks before were putting down the Russian Revolution from popping off. And then during the Russian Civil War, like the comrade before just explained how in Ukraine and in Kazakhstan, the Cossacks were fighting against the Red Army, continuously working to stop the worker state. And they were bandits back then and very reactionary, stealing from the masses. The thing that struck me as I read this was they marched from the industrial areas, looting shops and overturning trams and carriages. And I could not help but think about the protests that happened all last year. 
it appears that this is the mechanism for protesting even a hundred years ago. Thought that was interesting. Some things never change. Wondering if the comrades would have an explanation for how the protesters were able to take their position of demonstrating within the streets to leading to the abdication of a monarch. Seems like that is a very remarkable example of a head of state stepping down. I was wondering if there was more at play or if it truly was such a mass of people that it compelled that kind of decision to be made. Lenin said that Russia was the weakest link in the chain of the capitalist countries. That's why the revolution was going to happen there. They were weak. Remember, they lost the war with Japan. A third-rate power, there was a Russo-Japanese war. The Tsar's forces lost that war to the Japanese. They were very weak. They were just about to fall. It's a matter of who was going to push them. And that's my understanding of what happened there. It was going to happen. Who was leading the revolution is another story, but it was going to happen. And so there were different forces, the Mensheviks and the people under Kerensky. They had their first revolution in February, the February Revolution. So it was just a matter of time. And I just want to add something. What happened January in Washington, D.C., I am convinced that this country at that time was going through some kind of a confusion. They didn't know what to do, how to deal with it. First time in our life that an election was questioned. And not only in my lifetime, the first time in the history of the republic. So that's why that happened. So these things happen because the time is ripe for them to happen. The war was quite unpopular, and the Tsar at this time decided to take a trip to the front. While he was taking the trip to the front, that is when the strike began. And he, of course, told everyone to put down the strike, which didn't happen. When he did get back, which was like two or three days later, he was advised by his counselors that he needed to advocate. First of all, notice there were no guns there. We have to look at everything dialectically, comrade. Look at everything dialectically. There were no guns, but yet a change was happening. Remember the famous quote? that when you take water, put it in a tea kettle, at a certain point, the water changes from water to what? Steam. And it happens at a certain point. And that's exactly how things change in societies. But the Cossacks, I want to tell everybody the role of the Cossacks. I found out the role of the Cossacks when I talked to old Jewish people in 1970 when I joined the old party. And they came here in 1919, and later on, they were charter members of the old Communist Party. And they told me that when they went on strike in New York, remember, their horses and wagons, and the cops would come out on horses with batons and beat the workers on the back and broke backs and broke heads. And the Jewish workers were yelling at them, Cossacks, Cossacks. I thought that was extremely interesting. It was reminding them of who was putting down the rebellion 
in their home country when they came here, and it was the Cossacks. The Cossacks came out with the swords, and they came into the crowd and tried to put it down by physically killing and harming. I urge people to see the movie Dr. Zhivago. It shows you the part of the demonstration where the women and Father Gaban in 1905 was leading an uprising just for reforms. That's all. And how the Cossacks came into the crowd with their sabers and their swords. So people should understand that word is very, very important in the history of Russian Revolution. About the movie Dr. Jivago, and there's another movie also that relates to 1905, and it's from the great, famous Soviet movie maker, Eisenstein. And the movie is called Potemkin. It was when the sailors took over the ship near Odessa, and you can see at one time the Cossacks are charging the crowd. As stated earlier, Clara Zedkin was the first to present the idea of an International Women's Day in 1910. Until 1917, she was active in the Social Democratic Party of Germany. She then joined the Independent Social Democratic Party of Germany and its far left wing, the Spartacist League. This later became the Communist Party of Germany, which she represented in the Reichstag during the Weimar Republic from 1920 to 1933. In 1920, she interviewed Vladimir Lenin. Comrade Lenin frequently spoke to me about the women's question. Social equality for women was, of course, a principle needing no discussion for communists. It was in Lenin's large study in the Kremlin in the autumn of 1920 that we had our first long conversation on this subject. Lenin speaking, we must create a powerful international women's movement on a clear theoretical basis, Lenin began. There is no good practice without Marxist theory. That is clear. The greatest clarity of principle is necessary for us communists in this question. There must be a sharp distinction between ourselves and other parties. In Petrograd, here in Moscow, in other towns and industrial centers, the women workers acted splendidly during the revolution. Without them, we should not have been victorious, or scarcely so. That is my opinion. How brave they were, how brave they still are. Think of all the suffering and deprivations they bore. And they are carrying on because they want freedom, want communism. Yes, our proletarian women are excellent class fighters. They deserve admiration and love. We have in the party reliable, capable, and untiringly active women comrades. We can assign them to many important posts in the Soviet and executive committees, in the people's commissariat and public service. In 1922, Lenin established International Women's Day as a communist holiday in the new Soviet Union. The same year, Chinese communists began to celebrate it, and after the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949, it was proclaimed an official holiday. Spanish communists 
used March 8, 1936 as the occasion to stage a huge demonstration in Madrid, demanding protection of the Spanish Republic against the fast-growing fascist threat. International Women's Day would remain a communist holiday until the end of the 20th century, marked by carefully orchestrated state-sponsored celebrations of women's contributions to the state. As women in the United States and across much of Europe gained suffrage in the wake of the First World War, much of the momentum of International Women's Day celebrations waned. During the interwar years, some European socialists and social democrats continued to mark Women's Day, careful of omitting the term international to distinguish it from its communist sister celebration, but events rarely drew substantial crowds. It was mentioned that International Women's Day was an explicitly socialist or communist holiday through the end of the 20th century. And I'm wondering if the co-option of that holiday into bourgeois countries, and we see it celebrated in America every year. I'm wondering if that had anything to do with the fall of the Soviet Union or why did it happen then is what I'm wondering. The United Nations in 1975, when it was still a Soviet Union, when there was a growing socialist community on the planet of countries, we had so much power that the United Nations was able to pass a resolution calling for International Women's Year, and every year after that, International Women's Day. So I was opposite. It was the power of the socialist community throughout the world in the United Nations. Remember, every year, another country was going left. 1979, there was a revolution in Nicaragua led by left-wing rebels, including the Communist Party. Remember, there was an uproar in other countries. Africa, Mozambique, Angola, Guinea-Bissau, all led by Marxist parties that were very understanding and sensitive to the issue of the women's emancipation. So it actually happened for the other reason, that we were growing. After 1991, this is very interesting, that's when the people that left the socialist countries went to the West, a lot of them, including this country. That's when International Women's Day became big here because the women in social society were used to accepting and dealing with International Women's Day where they were giving flowers, gifts, recognized in the workplace. So that was the incentive here. The last little bit of the reading about trying to take communism out of International Women's Day and how it was not as popular, and just seeing how that is quite amplified nowadays, the commodification of Women's Day and having it as more of nice language instead of actually being rooted in a class struggle and how it's important to bring it back to class struggle. You're correct. It has been co-opted when socialism was out of favor or did not have as much power. I will say this, that I have noticed once you get into the Internet and start putting in International Women's Day, out comes an amazing amount of events that are occurring. It is building up again 
people are less afraid of the word socialism and workers' rights. And so I think we may see an upswing on that. It was co-opt. It said Women's Day. The European socialists and social democrats in Europe marked Women's Day carefully omitting the international. So during that time, they were trying to distance themselves from the communist sister celebration. And as Angelo said, there was a push by immigrant women to have something in the United States when they immigrated over here. But then with the collapse of the Soviet Union, again, it went back to being usurped or ignored. So it is interesting, the waves of when it's popular and when it isn't. It was only with the emergence of second wave feminism in the late 1960s that International Women's Day reemerged as a significant day of activism. Though the day never recaptured much attention among American feminists, European feminists embraced March 8th under the updated name Women's International Day of Struggle. During the International Women's Year in 1975, the United Nations first celebrated International Women's Day. Two years later, in 1977, the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution proclaiming a United Nations Day for women's rights and international peace. Eager to disentangle this new holiday from the socialist origins of International Women's Day, the UN Assembly noticed that it was to be observed on any day of the year by member states in accordance with their historical and national traditions. Moreover, in contrast to contemporary feminist practices of casting it as a day of protest, the United Nations billed it as a time to reflect on progress made and celebrate acts of courage and determination of ordinary women. In the decades since 1977, the United Nations has in fact marked International Women's Day on March 8th with events and activities centered around a particular theme such as empower rural women, end hunger and poverty, and empowering women, empowering humanity. In spite of such institutionalization of International Women's Day, and in following with its long history of competing traditions, March 8th is now marked in a variety of ways around the world. In many former communist regions, it is a public holiday. In Western Europe, it remains as an occasion for feminist demonstrations. And in many developing countries, women's rights activists take to the streets to voice their calls for gender equality. In Italy, men allegedly give yellow mimosas to women to celebrate the day. And in the United States, some people apparently send cards and flowers to honor the women. Where they were talking about how when International Women's Day was adopted in America and other Western countries, it became more of a day of celebration of women's accomplishments versus a day of protest, which it had traditionally been. In this country, women are still very much second-class citizens, and there's a lot, a lot of work that still has to be done for women's liberation, and so we really should still be focused on the protest part of it as opposed to celebrating the small gains that have been granted to women. Comrade Engels writes about that even with our 
other heroes that in the past, as soon as they die, everybody, shall we say, the bourgeois, take out the edges and you have a little fluff icon of what the person really was. Again, this is the same thing, diverting the attention from the struggle, the activism. The reading says that the UN was eager to disentangle the new holiday from its socialist origins. I was wondering if there were some other holidays with socialist roots that may have been watered down or taken away from their beginning. Both of them were first done in the United States, and that is May Day, Haymarket, Chicago. That was done in this country. It's as American as apple pie. The communists and the socialists logically took it to their bosom because it represents the ideology of the class struggle. That was one, and International Women's Day was the other. What they did with May Day is that they deliberately, in this country, only in this country, they deliberately set up another day in the early 1950s called Law Day, L-A-W. And they did that deliberately to show that bourgeois law doesn't need communist agitation. And they set up this thing, which we originally had, called Labor Day in September. So Labor Day is basically an American holiday. It doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet. Everywhere else, the workers celebrate May Day. So that's the way they took the heart out of May Day in this country. And there was a time when the communists were powerful in the 30s, where all the unions supported May Day, this Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO unions. So, yeah, that's another example. We've never really celebrated Women's Day, besides maybe Mother's Day. And... I find it interesting how even though a lot of the, for example, Ukrainian immigrants or some Eastern European immigrants that come to New York, many of them are very reactionary, especially the Ukrainians. And I worked in the Ukrainian restaurant for a couple of years. And despite its socialist history, they will never celebrate May Day. Anything about socialism, they're totally against. But Women's Day, I remember one of my coworkers came in with a bouquet of flowers and gave one flower to each woman that worked there. And he was super, super reactionary. But Women's Day, he was like, all right, we'll concede on that. On the topic of the bourgeoisie co-opting socialist movement, one thing that I recently learned was that the idea of identity politics was actually founded by this black feminist socialist group called the Combahee River Collective. And so it got co-opted and turned into the bourgeois liberal nonsense that a lot of people use. But the idea of identity politics was never meant to exist apart from class analysis. That's a very good point. I'm glad you mentioned that. Everything has been distorted from what it originally was so that the current characteristics of that movement is not the same as the original. And also the collective statement, they put out a statement in 1977, and if you just Google the Combahee River Collective, then you can find it. We hear a lot about the different waves in feminism, first wave, second wave, third wave. And I was wondering, are those terms arbitrary in the way that the bourgeoisie has co-opted feminist movements? I noticed that even in the early 1900s that they talked about feminism as bourgeois. They say middle class or upper class. 
with their own identity and their own goals. So I think feminism seems to be around for bourgeoisie. And so we have to then identify to make sure that what we're talking about is working class and the working struggle. I've been trying to integrate myself into different discussion circles where we're talking about feminism and other issues within feminism, like intersectionality that people want to try and say are the same. I always seem to find that it's the petty bourgeois white feminist that is saying it is the same for all women everywhere. We all seem to know that that's not the case. Are they stay-at-home mothers? Are they working-class mothers? Are they black working-class mothers? Are they black at-home mothers? So I always come into this really hard blockade. And if you would have any kind of way that I could tiptoe into how to get people, how to better associate myself within those communities. Angela Davis, who I don't respect anymore, I want you to know that, but I did respect her many, many times when she was younger. I went around collecting money for her defense in 1970. But she wrote an interesting book called Women, Race, and Class. And that book goes into what you were talking about. I suggest you get it and look through it, see if it can help you in any way that you would need. Everyone is aware of the Amazon strike or unionization that hopefully will occur. It's called Bamazon down in Alabama. What I found out was that 85% of the employees there are black women. So this has been the surging force to get this strike going, and I had not realized that. I just thought they were concerned about being their own advocates, finally gave up, and then went to this union, the RW, I forgot which, to help them out. I've been watching that very closely. This is going to be, I think, a big thing when they get done with their voting right now, and it's going to be close. I think we do have a unique position in the United States that we do need to take account into things like race and, of course, gender. That's everywhere in the world, but especially the way that race has developed class society in this country. I also want to emphasize that when we do look at identities, and this is some of my qualms with identity politics, even the Kambahi River Collective's original statement is that it treats class as an identity, not something that is ingrained and continues throughout history, not something that is the basis of race and of gender. So I think it's very important that when we do talk about these identities, we also remember at the end of the day, the basis of all this is class. Class is the base to it all. It shapes race. It shapes gender. It shapes religion. But that's all the superstructure. At the end of the day, class is still the base. And that's the ultimate goal. I think that we can all work together and rally against as we are cohesive and as we are a collective, that we can say our base is class, and this is the working class struggle. What I don't want to get into, which I see happens a lot, and I myself even fell into this, is treating 
being working class and being poor as another identity, but it's not. It's not just another identity. It's built within everything. And so while we have to remember that class also shapes race, class also shapes gender, I have no solidarity with Kamala Harris, even though I'm a black woman and she's a black woman. I don't have any solidarity with her. I have solidarity with the black women in Alabama. I charter member of the Communist Party, who I had the honor of knowing, Jewish woman from Russia, Fanny Heckman, H-E-C-H-T-M-A-N. I met her when I was in the old party, and she was a charter member. So she joined in 1919, the very beginning. And I met her in 1971. And she said something that stayed with me my whole life. She said, class is everything. This is an old Jewish woman who was a charter member of the party, who was a garment worker in New York. And I would rather follow her than any of these new left convoluted ideas that have nothing to do with reality. Class is everything. I agree with the comrades. Pat Sloan was a teacher in Great Britain who traveled to the Soviet Union from 1931 to 1936, recounted his experiences in his book called Soviet Democracy. This chapter is titled, Is the Role of Women in the Home? Question mark. Quote, it is physically impossible to relieve women of the function of bearing children. In this respect, equality of the sexes necessitates special privileges for the women. And so again, this is in the 1930s, so listen to the resources that women had at their disposal and compare that to our society today. In the USSR, women today who are having children or a child are relieved from work on full pay for a period of four months. If the doctor considers it advisable, she may be put on lighter work or completely relieved of work without reduction of pay at any time during pregnancy. The nursing mother, after returning to work, is allowed a special reduction in her working day. All medical attention and a layette for the child are provided free of charge. The question of family relations arises in a particularly acute form in the case of responsibility for children. Right from the early years of the revolution, the state put an end to all distinction between the married and the unmarried mother. In this way, the age-long distinction between ethical standards for men and for women was brought to the end. No child started out in life with the social stigma of illegitimacy. The Soviet state took further steps to ensure that marriage should be a voluntary contract and the family a voluntary social unit. Whereas a marriage and a family based on mutual love and respect has always been encouraged in the Soviet Union, the holding of people unwillingly together by force of law or by economic compulsion has always been opposed. Divorce has been made easy, subject to one condition, that there is equal parental responsibility for the upbringing of every child. Whether marriage is registered or not, according to Soviet law, every parent has an economic responsibility for his or her child. To ensure that a Soviet woman shall not have to bear the economic burden of bringing up children alone, every father, if not living with the mother of his children, must pay to her 30% of his earnings for one child, 40 for two, 50 for three, or more until all children are of working age. In this way, real economic equality of the sexes is established with regard to parental responsibility, while at the same time, people are not forced to live together if they have no longer any natural affection for one another. A fact that must be fully realized in this connection is that the whole formulation of sex equality in the Soviet Union has always tended to be different from its formulation among feminists in capitalist countries. 
The stress in the Soviet Union has always been equal economic and social rights and opportunities with special privileges to compensate for any burden arising from the bearing of children. On the other hand, in countries such as Britain and the United States, where years of unemployment have given rise to all sorts of theories of overpopulation, the emphasis is usually placed on the right of women not to have children as an essential aspect of sex equality. In the Soviet Union, where there is no illegitimacy and where unemployment was finally wiped out in 1931, overpopulation is an impossibility, since the whole of the economic planning of the country is based on the number of workers available, and the more workers there are, the better welfare for all. I found something really interesting from Nadezhda Krupskaya, wife of Lenin, that she wrote at the time, and I found it on the French side, so I'm translating it, but I do my best. She says, bourgeois women defend their special rights as women. They always oppose men and claim their rights against men. For them, current society is divided into two great categories, men and women. Men own everything, have all the rights. The question to them is to reach equality of rights. To the proletarians, the woman question is very different. Politically conscious women realize that current society is divided into classes. Bourgeoisie is one class. Proletaria is another. Their interests are opposite. The division between men and women is not of great importance. What unites working men and working women is much stronger than what divides them. What unites them is their common lacks of rights, their common needs, their common condition, which is the exploitation of their labor, their common struggle, and their common goals. One for all and all for one. This all refers to all members of the proletariat, men and women. So that's what she wrote back then. I'm not sure what year, but there was a wife of Lenin. That is the difference. I've heard it said that the feministic movement considers men the enemy, whereas the proletariat, workers, men and women, know the real enemy is capitalism. When we are working, because I'm getting pinched out of working corporate, pandemic hit, I needed extra work before the pandemic. I thought we were just going to be paying for my kid's summer camp, you know, extra. But getting pinched on my hours alone. And just when you're speaking of working class mothers, we had three or four pregnant women that were working with us during this time. Pregnant women working retail during pandemic. Of course, they still have to work. But when it's time for them to have their babies in corporate America, you don't really necessarily get paid maternity leave. You get unpaid maternity leave, a quarter paid maternity leave. And if you happen to have scheduled your pregnancy, they will happen to help you. So this affects so many people. This is just talking in Walmart from what I've seen with my own eyes. But I see this and I'm like, man, Walmart, man, Jewel. And I know with the overtime reaches alone, they wouldn't let me get close to my 30 hours close even to my 30 hours just so I'd be able to get that on my unemployment. They pinched my hours down to just about zero, so that's what I would be getting on my unemployment. It's a game truly, and I think more so affects women than affects anybody else. So the importance on saying 
it really affects women and men are the enemy. Well, men happen to own the corporations and they're billionaires and stuff. Yeah, but it's making a boogeyman out of people who can truly be allies to us. And I think that's where I see a lot of the aggression and in the argument when we're talking about white feminism and men are this. I think it's a lot of divisionist rhetoric to pull apart the groups coming together to try and fight for that. That is some of the characteristics of the capitalist class, regardless of gender. And so it's not surprising they're fighting among themselves while we are out of the game. So, yes, that's correct. At this time, why don't we start on any other book recommendations? Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. It's a classic on the evolution of society and the development of the family. It's by Friedrich Engels. The other book is by Ella Reeve Bloor. We called her Mother Bloor. Very active in the trade union movement. She wrote a book called We Are Many. The title itself says everything. We Are Many. It's a human reminiscence of the most beloved militants in the American labor movement. And the third one is Women in Society by Lenin. His writings and speeches on the women's role and the task in society. Women and Society by Lenin. And of course, the one I'm always pushing, Women Against Smith, written in 1948 by the Communist Party by Betty Millard, M-I-L-L-A-R-D. About the book that Angelo was talking about, Friedrich Engels, The Origin of the Family, the Property, and the State, it is a really awesome book to read. You've got to read that. And what's interesting is that Engels wrote it after Marx died. And then he had looked in his papers. He left a lot of papers, Marx did. And he found that Marx had read a book by Lewis Morgan called Ancient Society. He's an American, and he was an anthropologist, and he was super interested by that. And then Engels thought, man, i got to write a book about this. So he read the book himself and the notes of Marx, and he wrote his book, which is a true, true classic. A documentary called Salt of the Earth. It's about the Empire Zinc Strike where it started with men, but there was a court order put to stop the men from striking, and the women picked up the strike and helped keep it going, and the men having to be at home learned the struggle that the women in the village went through, and actually then they increased their demands to some of the things the women had wanted that they didn't think were as important initially. I mean, it was a really good documentary and had some of the people that were actually in the strike in it. I'm glad the comrade brought that up. Salt of the Earth is a movie, not a documentary. The director and the producers, one of them was called, and I believe it's Herbert Biberman. The screenplay was also by a communist. The one who started it, if anybody knows this, was William Gere. Will Gere was then blacklisted. He was a member of the party. He knew, by the way, Harry Hayes. They were friends, comrades in the same party. Will Gere became famous in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s with the movie called The Waltons. It's actually one of my favorite shows. It's about Paul Tennant Farmers, 
in Appalachia, and Will Gear was a star of that. And he was blacklisted, by the way, for his ideology. I was having a discussion with the Chilean comrades and one of our sister parties down in Chile about feminism, and we had a disagreement, and I would like some clarity. He said, and it kind of made a little bit of sense, that we, as Marxists, we shouldn't call ourselves feminists because feminism's values, the origins of the movement, were very bourgeois, and the feminism that exists today adheres to those values. The comrade is correct, 100%. The only person who used that term in our movement was one of the first people in the Soviet state, Kalantai. She was a member of the Soviet parliament, by the way, and one of the few leaders of the party that were women in her time. And so that is correct. The traditional definition is we never called ourselves feminists. Women in our party never called themselves feminists. They support what we call the term equality, gender equality, sexual equality, but we never use the word feminist because the original term was coined by the bourgeois sources. So unfortunately, that's the state of affairs. I don't think anybody's going to be thrown out of a party if they call themselves feminists. That's not that kind of an issue. Follow-up question. I see a lot of people that call themselves, or a lot of women that call themselves proletarian feminists. How does that come into play? Well, a lot of people call themselves anarcho-communists. It doesn't mean that that form exists. Hitler called his grouping National Socialist. So it's not a matter of what people call themselves or what other people call them. It's in our terminology, in our glossary, there is no such thing as an adjective in front of the noun. So we don't have anarcho-communists, we don't have National Socialists, and we don't have the term that you use, something feminist. And I've noticed this. It seems to be a big thing that people put an adjective in front of a thing that already has a definition, which basically is the old style of saying, I love you, but, or I love you, however, and you know the rest of that sentence, comrades. It's always a negation of the first part of the sentence. And that's the way we look at these adjectival nouns that people have created. They were never around during the Russian Revolution. Individuals may have called themselves that, but our party, from Lenin on, never accepted those terms. About Alexandra Kolontai, she was the very first woman in history to hold a government position in the Bolshevik government after the October Revolution very, very first woman in any country in all history of mankind. And she was a commissaire for welfare right after the Bolshevik Revolution. I mean, that's pretty impressive. And also, she became an ambassador later. There had never been any woman ambassador anywhere. We were talking about the UN and how they were trying to organize the date by saying, whatever date in your country, yada, yada, yada. I just wanted to know, the UN in general, has it always been super anti-socialist? Because I noticed, especially recently, that the United States and the Five Eyes countries usually vote as a bloc, and then pretty much everybody else 
goes against them by ideological terms. For example, there's something about condemning Nazism, and that was either abstained on or voted against by the United States. And things like, should Israel have a right as a country? Most countries in general just abstained from that vote because it was a clear PR vote kind of thing. Oh, look at these poor guys. So when I think about those things that are going on now and think about how they ended up using March 8 as Women's Day anyway, was there a time period where it was inclined to not go against the United States for most of the countries? Because I know Burkina Faso, for example, was socialist, and a lot of those leftist countries in the South, like Allende's Chile. Has it been a traditionally anti-communist, anti-socialist group as a whole? Because it is made up of many nations. I don't know the history of how many nations were participating at what time. I know the old League of Nations was mostly the, the bourgeois countries, but the UN, I don't know what the anti-socialist, how it's gone through time. The United Nations was started in 1945. It was started by the victors over fascism. And it was France, England, Soviet Union, and the U.S. They set up this structure to replace the League of Nations, which we had before, which failed. As long as the Soviets were around, there was a struggle in the United Nations constantly between these two world forces, capitalism on one hand and socialism on the other. As soon as they knocked the Soviet Union out of the picture, the Eastern European countries got knocked out of the picture. So now what you have is basically an international body controlled by and large by the United States. Let's be honest. The only opposition that has started has been over questions of war and peace when they account for Russian bases in the world, like in Syria. They still have a base there and uh, American bases in other parts of the world. Also, China has bases in parts of their area around their country. But they're not foreign bases. They're their own Chinese bases. The point I'm making is, under the Soviets, there were emerging countries that were going in a non-capitalist direction. Countries such as the African Liberation Movement, Guinea-Bissau, Mozambique, Angola, Ethiopia, Nicaragua, El Salvador, all that came to an end when the Soviets had a counter-revolution in Russia. So now the UN is playing a different role than it did originally in 1945. Especially with the women's movement, how often liberal bourgeois groups will basically steal all of our stuff and try to pass it off as their own and make it completely useless. Identity politics is a way that they often do that. For example, the phrase intersectionality was coined by black Marxist feminists in the 70s as part of the Combahee River Collective Statement, which I've read a little bit of, but I want to read more of because it seems like a very communist document, which now, most of the time, we don't hear about intersectionality outside of the context of identity politics. It's about are you this, are you that? in general, not are you this, are you that, in relation to production, that's completely taken out of it, which I think is interesting. And I think really what was going on with the Combahee River Collective Statement was a way for us to sort of bridge the gap between the ultra-liberal 
identity politics and a solid class-based analysis, because these two things can coexist, I believe, if we deal responsibly with these kinds of tough questions. I became first politicized through when I was a teenager, looking at feminism and being a young girl, street harassment, all that stuff. And I think that what we can do is combat the liberal feminism that is so prevalent in the United States, and we know why, but bring it back to the class struggle, bring it back to its socialist and actually push it forward into communism. And so unfortunately, a lot of things that I hear from liberals or people that consider themselves anti-capitalists when talking about parties in the United States, they often just cite things of misogyny and instances of sexual assault, sexual abuse. And so what I was wondering is how can we combat that? How can we start to analyze why these things arise in some parties and what we can do to fight against that? It's a problem. It is a problem. And let me just give you my experiences. I'm 74. So I've been in a world where the man was always right, especially the white man was always right, and everybody else was underneath them. I believe that's the whole basis of the Trump people. I think from their perspective, they want their country back, the country they knew and remembered. That's what they want back. Where there's no blacks, there was a song, the words go like this, it was in the 60s. They're looking for society where there were no blacks, no Jews, and no gays. It was in the late 60s or early 70s, and it was a big song on top 10. But that's what they're looking for. Understand that, comrades. They are angry. You saw what happened on January 6th. You saw that 75 million of their people, 70 million, voted for this guy. His position was always the same. He started to attack the disabled. You heard what he did at one of his rallies. So there is this sentiment in the country. That's the world I grew up under. What I've noticed is that society doesn't tend to correct mistakes. They tend to go in the other direction, comrades. I always use what happened in China as a perfect example. Whether you disagree with my analysis, but in China, they went from one end of the pendulum in a grandfather clock to the other. This swinging, drastic swinging, without coming to any kind of area of correction, just going maniacally from one extreme to the other. They went in the great leap forward, culture evolution, to market socialism. That's the biggest swinging I could see in my life, how they go from one to the other. But that kind of thing is common among people. We went from a position of one extreme, and I think we're on the other extreme now. I've been really involved with this whole new world, and I believe the pendulum has swung to the other. We have to wait for the pendulum to come back where it's supposed to be. So the question is not that women should be always believed, not that men should always be believed, but that we have to take each case and study it and make sure we have due process when people are threatened or attacked. Otherwise, we're going to destroy 
people's lives. And it happened before in the 50s when people were accused of being a communist and everyone believed it automatically that they were communists. And many of them jumped out of buildings in the McCarthy period, committed suicide, burned. I mean, I could go on and on. I'm not going to do it now. So we need to do what Stalin did, come to a position that we can defend as communists. Okay, recommendations for a movie that came from China in the 1960s. It's called The Red Detachment of Women. You can find it on YouTube. It's free. It's historical fiction, but it references the first woman's army in China, if I'm not mistaken, which was started on Hainan Island off of the south coast. It's not a Maoist movie. From my memory, Mao Zedong was not even mentioned once, but I thought it's a really cool movie and the subject of Women's History Month. I love that movie personally, and I think it's got a really catchy song that kind of plays throughout. Lennon on the Woman Question by Clara Zetkin and Women Against Myth. That was written in 1948 by Millard. There was a song during Allende Popular Unity called The People United Will Never Be Defeated. And that's something that we have to understand. When we talk about the people, we don't mean the wealthy. When we talk about the people, we mean people that are wage earners, they work with their minds. They work with their hands. Those are the people. And the people united will never be defeated. And that slogan has been used so much in the last 20 years in this country. And the name of the government was the Popular Unity Government of Allende and the Communists and the Socialists. In Spanish, there's a word that's kind of difficult to translate into English. It's pueblo. People is the closest but it refers to the humble people in a geographical area. So, el pueblo unido, the people united. Spanish specifically leaves out the bourgeoisie, we would say. Exactly, exactly. All right, thank you, comrade. Thank you for listening to this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Support us at newoutlookpublishers.net, join us on Discord, follow us on Twitter, and visit peopleschool.org to sign up for free classes.